Hello and a warm welcome to a new episode of the When in Spain podcast. Hola, ¿qué tal? I'm your host, Paul Burge. Thank you for joining me. In this episode, we're talking all about the Basque country, País Vasco, as it's known in Spanish, or indeed in the local Basque language, Euskal Herria, and of course, in French, also, Le Pays Basque. Because let's not forget that the Basque country also straddles the border with Spain and France and also has a French part as well. Joining me to talk all about the Basque country is communication and language consultant David Bumstead. Now, David found himself teaching English in the Basque country all the way back in 1983. And like many of us, he never left. And he settled down, got married, raised a family, and he's called the Basque country his home ever since. So think of this episode as a kind of almost everything you need to know about the Basque country. Almost. There's a lot to talk about. So we're going to be looking at the landscape, the history, the unique Basque language, the culture, food and wine, of course, and indeed cider. Uh, David's going to be giving us a little whirlwind tour of the uh, main cities, including San Sebastián, where he lives. We'll be looking at beaches, the coast, hiking, getting off the beaten track in the Basque country. Not to mention sports, of course, Pelota, the running of the bulls in Pamplona, the San Sebastián International Film Festival. We'll also be talking about Etta, the history of Etta. And to round off, we'll be looking at some fantastic TV series, the recent TV series, in fact, Patria, and some other interesting documentaries and films all related to the Basque Country. Lots to get through. And of course, along the way, David is going to be offering us his personal observations and insights uh, into life living in the Pais Basco. So stay tuned for all of that coming up in the hour ahead. Just before we get into the interview with David, I'd just like to say a very quick and big thank you to brand new When in Spain patrons. So a big thank you to new When in Spain patrons, Rebecca Slingo and Frank Oosting. And also a big thank you to Brian Goff, who is an existing patron who very kindly increased his monthly pledge. So a huge gracias to Rebecca, Frank and Brian. And if you too also enjoy the When in Spain podcast, you can support the show by signing up at the crowdfunding website, which is patreon.com com forward slash when in Spain. So let's get into the good stuff. Armchair travel alert. Let's whisk ourselves away to the Basque country with David Bumstead. David, thank you so much for joining the When in Spain podcast. It's my pleasure. Which part of the UK are you from? I'm from Essex. Essex. An I'm Essex, an Essex boy. An Essex boy. And you've been living in the Basque country for, for a long time now, so most of your life, really. Uh, more than half of my life. I graduated from university in 1980 from uh, Cardiff University and went off and travelled for a couple of years. Went back to Cardiff, did a master's. And then I think I was going to settle down uh, a life in Middle England uh, in education <laughs> or something like that. And I got yeah. the, um, some sort of mad desire to spend another year abroad. And I sent off my uh, CV to a bunch of places all around Europe. And um, the one job offer, they're, they're all the same, the job offers, you know, language schools and same yeah. timetable, same salary and all that sort of stuff. Well, one of them had the idea of putting a tourist brochure in the uh, in the envelope. And uh, it sounds as if I'm making it up, but the uh, tourist brochure <laughs> fell onto the kitchen table and opened up. And there was a thick picture of um, the Bay of La Concha. Uh-huh. And I just said, I'm going there. 
And uh, that was a, wow. kind of a life-changing moment. And the guy who the sent pick. it to me, a guy called Steve from the UK too, he had a school here. And we're yeah. still in touch. And I, we often mention that fact that my life was uh, ostensibly changed by a, by a photograph in a tourist uh, brochure. I came here initially with the idea of coming for a year. And then I immediately fell in love with the place. And, you know, as, as one does, I fell in love with a woman and um, set up a few language schools over the years, went into business. And um, next thing I knew, I've been here for 35 years or something like that. 35 years. And you said in the in the little tourist brochure that fell open on the page of the Bay of La Concha. La Concha is the bay and the beach in San Sebastian where you, where you live. Yeah, it's the... We have uh, three beaches in San Sebastian. Um, the two old traditional ones are La Concha and Ondarreta, which is a smaller beach. La Concha is the mm-hmm. famous one that always appears whenever there's a photograph of San Sebastian. It's sort of iconic. It's um, it's a beautiful, a beautiful thing. I mean, it's, a, you know, a shaped. Uh, La Concha means shell, obviously. And it's in yeah. the shape of the shell. It's got an island in the middle. It's absolutely yeah. beautiful. It's, it's a very nice genteel beach often gets some awarded prizes for being the best uh city beach in the world and things like that but uh, interestingly enough since i've been here since i've been living here um there's a third beach been developed uh mm-hmm. you know which is in a part of town that used to have a tiny weeny dirty beach and all of a sudden the mayor about uh, when would it have been about 20 years ago he had this idea of um building a third beach and so by dredging sand out from uh, from uh, outside the city and, uh, you know, uh, deeper in the water, they built a third beach, which is uh, which is a fantastic beach. It's called La Thurriola. And I can, mm-hmm. see it from, I can see a tiny weeny sliver of it from my window here. And it's a oh, great wow. surfing beach. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful beach. So that's that's my favorite beach. A bit of a family beach. You know, you get uh, little children and grandmothers going there. And the Thurriola is a bit uh, wilder. Not that I'm wilder, but uh. <laughs> just to put the Basque country or País Vasco um, on the map for anyone who's not sure, it's up in the northeast of Spain uh, on the coast, bordering a little sliver sliver of it borders uh, France, sort of the yeah. Biarritz area as well. Right. Um, describe what you, in your opinion, makes uh, the Basque country kind of unique compared to maybe other parts of Spain. I mean, uh, we know that it does have a sort of very unique identity uh, for many reasons. Well, when I came here, when I first came here, I wasn't aware of, uh, you know, this. I came here before the days of Internet. And as I said, I came on a whim because of the photograph. So I wasn't really aware of anything about the Basques, really. Apart from the reputation they had at that time for, uh, you know, terrorism and ETA and things like that, who were uh, in their campaign at the time. Uh, when I got here, what I what I really liked about it was the roughness of the coast. The, the weather is unusual here. I always think it's quite ironic that somebody from England is choosing <laughs> a place to settle down. I chose the rainiest place in uh, in the whole of Europe. I'm, I'm originally from Southend-on-Sea in Essex and... Uh, in San Sebastian, it rains on average three times more than it does in South End. But, uh, and in a way, I think that what happens when you've got a rainy climate, the local society has to compensate for that and have other things to do. You can't rely on going to the beach all the time. Yeah. So there are gastronomic societies and there's lots of cultural things. Uh, there's film festivals. There's all sorts of fiestas and things like that. The people are drier 
you could say than the people in other parts of Spain. You know, they're yeah. uh, they're not so happy-go-lucky. But uh, once you get accepted and make friends, they're very very good friends, and uh, they're great company. They've got a good sense of humour. And then you've got the um, one of the things I really like about it is the uh, kind of combination of cultures. You've got um, obviously uh, the the Spanish Basque country is in Spain, so you get a lot of Spanish culture here, football, the TV, the movies, and things like that. Then you've got Basque culture, but we're also very very close uh, to uh, France, the French Basque country, which has its own unique character. But it's also a bit of France as well. So you've got those three things going on at the same time. And um, there's a huge amount of movement between the areas. You know, there's lots of people who, who live in the French past country but work in San Sebastian. Or Then it's very well connected. Going back to the uh, Basque culture, I suppose, it's got a unique identity. The Basque people, the kind of history of the Basque people, some people say it's a bit of a mystery that they historically are kind of isolated or don't have a sort of connection to the rest of Europe or Spain. And then we can bring into that the Uxqueda language, which um, is debated whether it's re- related to other Indo-European languages or not. Um, what's your... What's your take on that? Does it have a mysterious origin? Well, I suppose it does have a mysterious uh, origin in as much as uh, it's always been a mystery. Uh, I think in recent years with the advent of, um, you know, computer analysis and things like that, uh, they've been able to track down where the language comes from uh, more easily or where it doesn't come from. I mean, but for hundreds of years, it was a complete mystery. People sort of... uh, said it might have come from North Africa. There was a big thing about how it might have come from the Caucasus, that there's some similarity between the Georgian language and things like that. And, you know, mm. and in, in the olden days, it was sort of bearded men in, uh, in towers pouring over books, counting words and things like that. Nowadays, what they've been able to do is they've been able to work out really where it's from. And the, 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 the conclusion among most linguists nowadays is, is that it's from here. You know, it's not from anywhere else, which mm. makes it one of the original European languages, you know, um, up there with, I think, Latvian and Hungarian and things like that, mm. which is uh, which in itself is quite remarkable, because um, given the fact that the Basque country has never been an independent nation, um, for it to have preserved uh, its language while so many other languages in the area disappeared, Mm-hmm. It is 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 quite um, is quite remarkable, and I believe that um, that's intrinsic to who the Basques think they are. You know, they what they feel they are is very very connected with their language, far more so than any other place I've ever been. You know, they they they, you know, they Basque speaking, not Basque speaking. Yeah. The uh, the desire to keep the language alive culture through the language is it fair to say it's sort of their expression of their kind of cultural independence from from other parts of spain not independence from parts of spain necessarily but certainly of of their own identity you know they'll um, mm-hmm. um even basques who don't speak basque uh, will throw in lots of basque words to kind of um show that they're basque you know and uh, <laughs> yeah. there's lots of basque words that are currently used in Spanish here 
and you can tell a Basque. You can tell a Basque by the language he uses and, uh, and things like that. And then it is part of their identity, and they've done a hell of a lot to uh, to keep it alive. You know, um, it was kind of banned under Franco for all those years, and then made a yeah. huge um, renaissance uh, after Franco's death in '75. Um, then with the, um, you know, most of the governments in the Basque country since 75 have been uh, Basque nationalist, the PNV, and they are very much involved with keeping the language alive. And they do that through universities, through schools, through cultural events, through translations, all sorts of things mm. like that. Now, I went to university in Wales. I'm half Welsh. I make a lot of comparisons between Wales and the Basque country. They're similar in all sorts of ways, you know, green on the edge of Europe, if you like, windy, yeah. rainy places. They even play rugby here. So uh, the, the, the links between uh, Basque country and Wales are quite uh, endless. Oh, that's interesting. Agree. I didn't know that. Uh, the Welsh never really made such a big effort to keep their language alive. You know, I'm, most Welsh people I know don't speak Welsh. Whereas most Basque people I know do speak Basque, do speak Basque. And, certainly, and certainly the kids and the teenagers. Just to look at the language, when you see it written, I mean, it bears very little resemblance to Castellano or Spanish. Linguists call it uh, an orphan language. It has no mother or father. You don't have any problems whatsoever in speaking Spanish in the Basque country. But the mm. language is there, and it's, it is indeed not related to any other language. Because if you look at Gallego or Catalan, for example, I mean, you can definitely see the resemblance yeah, to, to Latin, to Castellano. Exactly. Their romance-based language, their uh, Latin languages. The Basque have always been big traders, you know, and so they, uh, they traded with the Romans. They traded with the, um, with the Moors, the Arabs, when they were here. And uh, they, you know, this part of the world has been been invaded by everybody, you know, the, the Visigoths and the Vikings and everybody's been here. And the Basques, I think their language stayed alive, you know, in, in the background, because unlike other parts of Spain, the, the Romans didn't really colonize what is actually the Basque country today. Basically, they got as far as La Rioja and um, Pamplona. Not really the Basque coast, so maybe there's something that kept the language alive there. A person who's a Basque speaker is called uh, an Osqualdun in Basque, which means, <laughs> which means a possessor of the Basque language. So in a way, um, their very definition of who they are is in some ways connected with the language. Fura, fura, fandangua. What I wanted to talk about for people who may not be familiar with this corner of Spain is to kind of paint a, a picture of the landscape and geography. I mean, I um, for me, it conjures up sort of very, like you said, rugged and green and rolling hills, um, very reminiscent for me of, yeah, like you said, Wales or Cornwall or even Scotland in, in the UK. Is that true to say? Very true. And then, uh, yeah, it's rugged. It's uh, It's got, uh, you know, it's got these rolling hills. It's got the foothills of the Pyrenees. It's very windy. It's very rainy. Never really gets as cold as uh, other parts of Spain. It doesn't get as cold as places like Burgos or, or even uh -huh. Madrid. Or, Madrid is very cold at the moment, yeah. Well, here we're on the coast, so it's wet. I mean, um, it doesn't very often drop below 10 degrees here in the depths of winter. Some people think, um, because there's these Basque farmhouses called caserios that sit on the sides of very green mountains, I've heard a lot of people say it even looks a little bit like Switzerland. What it definitely doesn't look like is the traditional idea that people have of Spain. 
They say yeah. that, um, you know, you don't like the weather in San Sebastian, you know, wait five minutes. So. I've heard that said. So you've got to kind of dress for a, for all four seasons in one day. Um, I heard you talk <laughs> say something funny about the locals walking around with an umbrella tucked into their collar or something like that. Right. They do indeed. Less nowadays. Everything's changed. I mean, I've been here since 1983. And when I first came here, it was very much a a post-Franco Spain. But when I first came here, there were little old ladies in black and men wearing berets. And you did see um, the older men walking around with their berets on and their umbrellas tucked into the back collar of their coats. You don't really see that anymore. The beret has almost completely disappeared. In, in Has it really? Yeah, which is a pity. Well, it's kind of a shame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I always... What do they call it? What do they call it? It's not a boina, but it, they a have a different word in... Yeah, but I mean, uh, the interesting thing is that um, the French wear them and um, the Basques tell you that uh, the French wear them because the Basques wear them. It it sort of came from this part of the world, you know. Came from the Basque country. Perfect, uh, perfect uh, protection against the rain. Or the shitty midi, which is another word that's an interesting word. It means drizzle. Chitty midi, and it's it's kind Chitty of you know, water that's in the air. The the beret, the bath beret, was a was a perfect um, protection against that. Protection against the shitty midi. Oh, what a beautiful word! But, it's, but it's not quite... to be seen, but not to be seen anymore, unfortunately. You know. What a shame! What a shame. Um, maybe, maybe I'm at an age now in which I should uh, try and bring it back. I think you should. I think you should start uh, a campaign to bring back the boina, the beret in the country. The Basque word for it is chapella. Chapella. So staying with the landscape, I suppose, um, what I'd like to do is uh, for you to give us a a whirlwind tour, if you like, of some of the kind of key cities. I mean, we've got obviously where you are in San Sebastián. We have Bilbao as well. And we have uh, Vitoria Gasteiz, which is the Basque capital. But I I don't know, is it right? Would you say that the Vitoria is kind of somewhat overlooked even though it is the Basque capital. Yeah, yeah. You had um, two big cities in the Basque country. Uh, you had Bilbao and San Sebastian and roughly speaking Bilbao was the industrial capital and San Sebastian was the cultural and uh, uh, capital. Both of them doing quite well as cities, quite wealthy cities. After uh, 1975 when the Basque government came into uh, into into power um, I think what they decided to do was uh, a little bit like they did in Australia with Canberra. Rather than put the capital in one of the two cities that were already doing well, they chose a, a third city which uh, would kind of help that city thrive. So quite a lot of money has gone into uh, Vitoria. It's, it's a lovely place. I tell you, it's a beautiful place to live in. Very, very green. But culturally, it's it's not very exciting, you know. I mean, it hasn't got much that uh, the rest of the Basque country has. You've got San Sebastian, which is still, I, I would say, the the people from Bilbao would now uh, claim otherwise because they've got the Guggenheim. But San Sebastian still has a lot of the the, the cultural uh, events of the Basque country, and it's obviously very, very beautiful. And it's, you know, on the coast. It's got that bay and things like that. When yeah. I first came here, um, I had a girlfriend who was from Bilbao, and I used to go to Bilbao at the weekends. And I'm talking about the early to mid 80s. And Bilbao was just a, an absolutely awful place. It was so dirty, so dark, so miserable. Um, you know, almost almost Dickensian in, in, in the field. <laughs> really? And then, so- and then in, uh, all of a sudden they got this idea of um, building the Guggenheim. And they tried to sell it to the Basque people by saying it was going to regenerate the city. And... Um, People didn't really buy into it, really, because you think about it, you know, oh, yes, we've got this horrible, dark 
miserable city where industrial city going down and yeah. we're going to build a we're going to build a, an art museum it's going to transform the city and it's going to cost 100 million euros you know but the funny thing is that it worked you know it just kind of uh influenced the whole city changed the attitude of the city they cleaned it up they cleaned up the river yeah. um the guggenheim is on the river it, and it, it's an absolutely in my opinion it's an absolutely stunning building i mean i've only seen photos of it sadly i haven't have yet to see it in person but um so it, you're saying that really it did put bilbao on the map for international <laughs> and domestic tourism what did they say the first three years of uh, the guggenheim uh, they had um four million visitors which is was unheard of for bilbao you know they never had any visitors at all in actual fact <laughs> in bilbao famously you know, hotel rates were cheaper at the weekend than they were during the week. Because is that uh, right? Wow. <laughs> yeah, you know, because anybody who went to uh, Bilbao for business on a on a on a Wednesday got out by Friday to go to San Sebastian. To go to San Sebastian. <laughs> Interesting. Because I mean, it's a very iconic-looking building, and many people, even if you haven't been to Bilbao, will recognise that kind of metallic curved structure it looks very impressive i imagine when you're stood right up next to it it, it must be pretty uh, pretty incredible well it's amazing and also um because it's such a strange shape um i go to bilbao once a month for work reasons and every time i see it i it sort of takes my breath away you know yeah. because you see it from different angles and if the sun is shining in a certain way it's on the river i've heard uh, frank gary who uh, designed it talk about it and he would say things like well you know i wanted it to tie in with the former industrial landscape of the city and um, you normally take those kind of things with a pinch of salt but uh, i think he actually achieved that and of course the bilbainos are very very proud of it they love it and it does it just it's a real focal point for the city it did cost a lot of money they had to pay a lot of money to the guggenheim foundation it cost a lot of money to make in itself then they had to fill it with artwork so a lot of money went out there but um these four million tourists that came in in the first three years and it's very easily argued that it's paid for itself many it's times over. Itself. Um, i'm glad to hear that because um as we know there are many projects like that that happen in other parts of spain which end up being complete white elephants um thinking of like the city of arts and sciences in valencia for example which was a vast amount of money i mean amazing architecture to look at but isn't much really to see inside them i don't know if they've been as, as successful as somewhere like the guggenheim in bilbao well, i don't even know, i don't even know if there's a i mean there is a lot to see inside the guggenheim but i'm no expert on modern art um my feeling is that most people who go to bilbao don't go for the contents of their museum they go for the effect that the museum has had on the city i guess it would be remiss not to mention guernica Many people will know from, well, first of all, I suppose, Pablo Picasso's uh, very powerful mural, I suppose, depicting that sort of chaotic war scene from the uh, bombing during the Spanish Civil War, I think, in 1937. It's about half an hour from Bilbao. It's very important to the idea of uh, Basque identity because sort of the original laws of the Basque country, the financial laws of the Basque country and the agreements with the rest of uh, the Kingdom of Spain, the Fueros and all that sort of stuff uh, are based there. There's a tree there called the Tree of Guernica, which is um, very important in Basque folklore. Um, and that's why uh, that's why they bombed that, sit, that, that town rather than bombing uh, San Sebastian or Bilbao. 1937 spring, 
bomb, bombed it, uh, destroyed it. Eighty percent of the of the buildings were destroyed in that bombing, but it was then rebuilt um, very well. The, the the town was rebuilt very well by the nationalists who took control of it. Rebuilt it very very interestingly as a, as almost like a perfect town. So it is actually a nice place to go to, even though. Uh, most of the buildings date from the late 1930s onwards. Yeah. What it has got there, uh, which is about 10 years old, I think, is an amazing museum, a peace museum. And it is absolutely, it's a wonderful experience. I mean, I've taken my kids there and I've been there a few times and um, it's audiovisual experiences. You can feel as if you're in a room as the bombs are coming down and... Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a very, very interesting uh, place to visit, Guernica. There's a Scottish um, historian called Niall Ferguson, who you may have heard of. And he wrote once that uh, for him, the traditional dates we have of the Second World War, 1939 to 1945, should be revised. And they should be 1936 to 1945, because he believes wow. that the Spanish Civil War is part of uh, the Second World War. The Second World War. Same it's the same people fighting against each other. Paul Preston, another uh, prestigious, probably the best um, British historian on Spain. Yeah. He believes that uh, had it not been for the Spanish Civil War, the uh, Second World War would not have taken place. Had the Allies, had the French, the British got involved in the Spanish Civil War to the same extent as the Germans and the Italians. The Second World War might Would not never made not. Paul Preston, just for the listeners, is a, a fantastic writer on Spanish history. I'm so you're right. So Guernica is definitely worth worth a visit. Moving out of the the cities, then obviously País Basco is uh, a coastal region of Spain. Beaches, any seaside towns or villages that are your favourites, which you would recommend? The Basque Country's got lots and lots of very nice beaches because of the weather situation and perhaps because of the Eta situation back in its day mass tourism never took off here whereas some coastal areas of spain were ruined a little bit by high-rise buildings you don't get any of that in the basque country they've retained their kind of feel there's lots of fishing villages which have small beaches um, right on the border with um with france you've got this place called uh, Ondarredia. Uh, which has an amazingly beautiful beach, and even up the Basque coast, there's uh, the French Basque coast. There are some, there are some absolutely lovely beaches there. So the whole of this coast here, this Bay of Biscay, Atlantic coast, is peppered with very, very nice beaches with very interesting waves. You know, we have a lot of um, surf competitions here, uh, so any number of beaches people tend to like the beach that's closest to their house you know i i i walk the uh, half uh, 20 minutes to my local beach and i love it there but um every town on the coast has a has a nice beach well worth okay. visiting and mm-hmm. and it's a great way it's a great way of visiting those coastal towns there's a town called um getaria which is 40 kilometers from uh, san sebastian it's a beautiful town, wonderful fishing restaurants there, and a tiny, weeny little lovely beach. And it's famous in a way for uh, Juan Sebastián Elcano, who nobody's ever heard of, uh, but it was his centenary recently. Uh, he, you know, everybody says, when you, when you ask the question, who was the first man to circumnavigate the earth, everybody says uh, Magellan. But Magellan actually died halfway around in a, in a native uprising in the Philippines, and he's 
credited with being the first man to circumnavigate the earth because his ships were brought home by this man, uh, Juan Sebastián Elcano. So in a way, he was the first person to uh, circumnavigate the, the earth and nobody's ever heard of him. In, in this small town, there's a statue to him and uh, it says on there, Juan Sebastián Elcano, the first man to circumnavigate the earth. And I imagine foreign tourists going there saying, they're making this up. There's a very, very, very slow train uh, service along the coast from San Sebastian to Bilbao, which takes about five hours because it stops at every village along the way. Now, if but, you've but got loads, of, if you've got loads of time, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant thing to do. I was going to say, I bet that's a thoroughly enjoyable, magical five hours trundling along yeah. the coast. That sounds fantastic. And also, is it true? I heard that some of the beaches along the coast there were filming locations for the Game of Thrones, which oh, I have yeah. to say I have not watched, but I'm sure many yeah. listeners will will know it. Yeah, the, uh, a lot of the locations on the Basque Coast were were filming locations for Game of Thrones. We, in fact, that's it spawned a whole um, new area of tourism. Small towns like uh, Tarau, Fumaya, which are not far from San Sebastian who are lovely places, which are lovely places in themselves, all of a sudden you get all these people from, um, you know, Southeast Asia and, uh, you know, Nebraska coming to, <laughs> to visit them because of Game of Thrones. For people who are into like hiking and senderismo, as they say, right off the beaten track, maybe away from the coast, are there any particular areas or routes that you would suggest for doing that? You've only got to go about 15 miles inland from uh, the coast and you hit hill country you know um the basque country is very 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 hilly the only area of uh, the basque country which is not hilly is the coast and even that is you know it's got its fair shares of, of hills and people are really into it i had a i had a language school in a small town called ordicia for about 15 years and that's in the middle of a valley called the goyeri you go there it's a it's a small town nestled in among the hills the, the foothills of the Pyrenees, if you like. But the tourist office there has amazing sort of uh, hiking trails that you can do with mountain bikes or walking. It's got some beautiful mountains there. And even though they look like mountains, they're not really that challenging. I mean, there's, there's uh -huh. a famous mountain called Chindoki, which looks like the mountain that features on the Paramount moving. <laughs> uh, and the logo, it's yeah. Like it looks like a perfect uh, mountain. And the best thing about it is that even a person like me can climb it in about two and a half hours. <laughs> so it's manageable. It's manageable. Yeah, it's very Most manageable. Yeah, to work it. Okay. And then you get then uh, you, the, the, the Pyrenees are only a couple of dry, couple of hours drive from uh, from uh, from San Sebastian. So uh, you've got uh, more challenging mountains there. But all the people who live in uh, the, the interior, you know, inland, everybody I know, goes out at the weekends, you know, hiking in the mountains. And the good thing about the Basques is, as well, is that once they see a lot of people in the place, they'll open a bar or a restaurant in that area. So, uh, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but you may go walking in a, a you know, up a, up a hillside, but uh, you've got the uh, guarantee of a bottle of cider when you get to the end of and a pincho. And a pincho, a bit of sustenance. You're listening to the When in Spain podcast. Stay tuned for Food and Drink, the unique sport of Pelota, the chaotic running of the bulls in Pamplona, 
the San Sebastian International Film Festival, the history of ETA, and some fantastic film and TV recommendations. You're listening to When in Spain. I'm glad you mentioned Pincho, actually, because what I wanted to move on to was my favourite topic, food and drink. I mean, when I think of the Basque Country, that's what I think of. I think of Pinchos. And I suppose in terms of drink, maybe the Chacolí wine. Um, just talk about Pinchos and Chacolí first of all. And then I would like well, to ask you what else that is lesser known from the region, maybe, that is typical of the Basque country. Pinchos are like tapas, basically. Pinchos are like tapas, but basically they are, is uh, they take a small piece of bread. Um, they put something on it. Uh, so like a stuffed pepper or a, a bit of uh, octopus or something like that. And they hold it in place with a with a with a spike with a toothpick. Basically, you go into the bar. The bar situation has always been based on trust. You go into the bar, you order a drink, and you'll start eating pinchos. When you finish, you show the barman the toothpicks that you've Is got. It, so if you've eaten three pinchos, you've got three toothpicks. Three toothpicks. Three little sticks. And they and they charge you for that. Back in the day when it was only Basque people uh, in the Basque country doing those things, well, they were more basic. And as the years have gone by and this whole new wave of Basque gastronomy and everything like that, uh, they've become more and more elaborate, more and more expensive as well. It's, it's, it's not the cheapest way of uh, getting sustenance. Well, but it's, I, it's, I agree. I mean, even here in Madrid, there are pincho bars in other parts of Spain I've been to. And they've got now they've developed the system where the little toothpicks have color coding on them. So they might be a little like a blue or red or a green tip. Ooh. And each one has a kind of different price point, you might say. Ooh. What they don't do in the Basque Country, which they seem to do in the rest of Spain, uh, is that you can go into a bar and you order a, a, a beer or a glass of wine and they'll give you something to go with it. That's right. Yeah. They don't, they don't do that here because uh-huh. it would diminish their uh, their sales of pinchers. Of course, that makes sense. Yeah. And I think it's a wonderful sight when you walk into a bar and you see the, the bar top just covered in a sea of, of all of these little uh, pinchos that, like you said, can look really beautiful and elaborate because they've all, oh, they've yeah. got a bit of everything, you know, cheese, meat, seafood, everything on them. Yeah, the, the thing is that um, uh, in recent years, about 10 years ago, they started this campaign to uh, cover them up because it's, oh. not really, you know, health and safety. And health and safety, yeah. And so you've got lots of men there, you know, the men coughing and spluttering, uh, standing next to these uh, Lovely looking pinchos and, you know, yeah, as, people from, uh, as people from more sophisticated parts of the world started coming to the Basque country, you know, uh, you know, they started saying, well, maybe they should be uh, covered up a little bit. And there were movements towards doing it. Uh, and then all of a sudden COVID came along and wow. now they're all covered up. They well, are all covered up. It'd be interesting to see whether they, uh, once we're past the worst of the COVID situation, whether they go back to having them exposed on a bar top or whether that will I be it. I really don't think they will. I think um, uh, it's kind of a shame. But, yeah, it is a shame, but you can see the. It's understandable, the, yeah. And they are absolutely wonderful. I mean, uh, as I said, I mean, San Sebastian to, uh, to eat out and drink out, uh, I've been to most of Spain. And I would say that I, I can't think of a more expensive part of Spain and then the Basque country. That kind of thing, just going out and eating pinchos and having raciones and things like yeah. that, it's more expensive than, than even the Madrid, I think. I mean, I've heard that uh, specifically San Sebastián has got the highest cost of living in, in all of Spain and, and also some of the highest average incomes as well. And real estate. So, uh, real estate. yeah, people 
people earn more. The economy is pretty good here. Unemployment is always much lower than in the rest of Spain. But then you, you buy a flat and um, it's ludicrously expensive. So, uh, yeah. you know, you, it kind you, of balances out. You lose some. <laughs> wine. I mean, that's the only wine that I know from the Basque country. It's got that little bit of sparkle to it when it's poured. I, mean, it, it's, it's, I, I really like it. White wine. It's white wine. It's um, slightly sparkling. Um, a lot of the sparkling they get is by pouring it from up high. A bit like the cider that they do in, in, in Asturias, yeah. Yeah, there's a big tradition of cider here. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Uh, but the Chacolí, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a very popular, it's not very strong, alcoholically speaking, and it goes very well with uh, seafood. Um, the grapes they grow are on the, on the Basque coast. There are people who talk about it having the kind of the taste of the sea, the salt of the sea, that that kind of thing. I don't know if that's really true. I've heard that now they're developing uh, chacoli in places like Burgos and uh, and even in Chile, in the country of Chile, they've got some uh, chacolindegis, as they call them, where they make uh, chacoli. Interesting thing about it is that you could um, you can go out for dinner, have a bottle of chocolate between two people and you're in theory not over the limit in terms of uh, uh interesting because it's it's not very strong move on from that from the from the chocolate to the cider tradition in the Basque country which is which is huge they have these uh, in tiny villages inland they have these places called cider houses sagardo tegi in basque and what they are they the there are these huge barn like uh, places in the countryside with huge barrels, and they, uh, you walk around the barrels, they pull a little plug out of the barrel, mm-hmm. and a spout of cider comes out, and you catch it in your flat-bottomed grass, uh-huh. and you knock it back all in one, and Fantastic. then you eat it as well. And the, and the food that you eat, there's a, they have a set traditional menu, which is uh, a bit of cod with peppers, then cod omelette, and then huge uh, T-bone steaks. You know. ah, okay okay yeah because i was going to ask you outside of the pinchos that we know what, what are kind of common dishes from from the region there's huge fish eaters in the basque country i mean uh cod and hake and uh octopus and what have you but the 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 cider houses they are amazing because if you like a city like san sebastian it's pinchos now they're very sophisticated there's lots of Michelin stars in the city, you know. Sebastian is the, uh, what is it, uh, per head of the population. It's got the highest percentage of Michelin stars of any city in the world. Amazing. More so than, uh, more so than uh, you know, New York, Paris, London. It's an amazing thing. And they are these very famous restaurants, which very often get into the top 10 restaurants in the world. You know, there's a famous one called Arthak, which he's been in the top 10 for probably... Uh, 20 years but away from that that sophistication of modern basque cuisine you've got these cider houses which is the absolute polar opposite of Uh standing up in barn-like places tucking into huge bloody steaks rustic and hearty (laughs) which i think i would prefer sometimes with the uh with the cousins mothers and sisters of the cows you're eating watching on (laughs) <laughs> I read an interesting stat, so I don't know how accurate it is, but it, um, it's, it said something like Basque people spend more than twice as much of their disposable income on food as people in the United States, for example, which um, I don't know whether you would go along with that. I'm sure that's true, because what we commented before, it is quite expensive, I mean, uh, mm. uh, here. 
basically people are obsessed with food. I mean, people talk about food all the time. Um, you know, there's a huge, huge tradition of um, of uh, good quality cooking here, which I'm trying myself to break by uh, my dreadful cooking. But uh, <laughs> but I mean, um, everybody cooks. Every you know, kids, teenagers, they 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 eat things that people in the UK would never eat. I mean, you'd have seen it in Spain. I mean, kids eating all sorts of sophisticated things. To, Oh, back absolutely. In back in South End, they'd never eat, you know. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, especially things. Oxfors, eating olives, eating yeah. all sorts of. Any kind of seafood or, uh, I mean, uh, your, your shrimp or prawns, but with their heads and the tentacles and everything still intact uh, would be. And then, and then every social uh, every social event is celebrated in terms of food. So it's a birthday. So somebody's leaving to go and study in another place. Everybody gets together and has a meal, you know, and and they don't they they very often they don't do it at home mm. because people tend to live in apartments here because real estate is very expensive, so they have these gastronomic societies. Where yes, they're very famous, aren't they? Yeah, well, they traditionally were sort of men only. I don't know it, if that's changing now. It is changing. It's changing quite quickly. Uh, but there are still some men only uh, places or there are plenty of them in which they um, are not men only anymore, but only the men are allowed to do the cooking, which I, I, I suspect the women don't mind too much. If they're, if they're allowed <laughs> to do the eating, they, they don't mind the men doing the cooking. They are quite wonderful places because what they do is uh, they, they have, um, you know, everybody pays a monthly uh, fee, which pays for renovation of the, the kitchens. So they have state-of-the-art kitchens. They have people who come in and do the washing up. So typically, a group of friends, it might be the birthday of one of a, uh, a group of friends, they'll celebrate their birthday in one of these um, gastronomic societies. They'll go in there, uh-huh. a couple of the people will do the cooking, and then they'll all leave it all lying about for somebody to come in and clean up, and uh, you go out to the old parts of the bars, or everything is celebrated there. You know, christenings, weddings. Uh-huh. Those gastronomic societies are kind of like member-only private restaurants, I suppose. You could describe it like that, kind of. Yeah. There's actually one here in Madrid I've seen, um, not far from me, which I discovered. They're kind of quite clandestine-looking. One in, in my neighbourhood in Madrid has just got a, a wooden door with a very, uh, just a small name above it and and it was only until recently that i realized that it was a little uh gastron- gastronomic society and i saw a couple of old guys going in with carrier bags of food obviously going in to start preparing the food yeah interesting yeah, most, most of them look like that although um they're kind of less private uh, than they used to be so for example i don't belong i'm not a member of a gastronomic society but i have plenty of friends who are and so I go to them quite a lot, uh, but as the guest of uh, somebody else, you know. Yeah. And they are very, very popular, you know. Even my 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 kids, for example, are in their, you know, twenties. They uh, they have friends whose parents are members, and so if it's somebody's birthday, rather than go out to a restaurant, uh, which is more expensive, they'll do the meal themselves in a in a gastronomic society, which mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Very intimate and sociable, uh, I guess, as well. And fantastic, I imagine, absolutely amazing food. Moving on to Basque traditions, I suppose the obvious one is to look at Pamplona and the San Fermín running of the bulls.
But have you ever been? Um, what was I've your? Been, ex- uh, yeah, I've been uh, probably half a dozen times. And what um, was your experience? Well, the first time I ever went there was uh, after I'd been here for about six months, and uh, uh, I didn't know too much about it. I'd read some Hemingway to uh, to sort of prepare myself. Of course, yeah. And uh, I went down there, and um, ludicrously, I found myself running with the bulls the next Did you month. really? <laughs> yes, which was a, a, a horrifying thing to do. It was, um, there, there is a way of doing it, and the way I did it wasn't the way of doing it. So I, <laughs> I, Nothing happened to me, uh, but I had a near miss, yeah. and I vowed that I'd never do it again, and then 10 years later I found myself doing it again, this time with somebody who knew what he was doing. When does it normally take place? The first week of July, right? From first week of July, yeah. Fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, it's, um, I think it's nine days. Um, it's incredibly popular. I have friends who live in Pamplona and, um, you know, these friends are in their 50s and 60s. And they're still not tired of it. I mean, it would it would drive me up the wall, I think. You know, you can't, yeah. you can't get around the city. Um, but it's an amazing tradition. And how it's allowed in terms of health and safety and those kinds of things, <laughs> God knows. Spanish traditions and health and safety do not yeah. do not mesh very well. It's it's more than just a big drunk thing. There's there's uh-huh. a lot of cultural aspects to it. And if you have small kids, uh, there's lots of things to do during the day and activities. And so it's it's a full on thing. It's uh, yes, it does have the big you know crazy nights out and everything like that with everybody. The the actual running of the ball starts at eight o'clock in the morning. So uh, those people who are participating, they haven't been to bed before they, uh, (laughs) or not many of them have been to bed. You know, they've done an all-nighter, which makes it even more remarkable that there's not more casualties. If anybody was thinking of uh, coming for, coming up to this part of the world for the running of the bulls, I would say don't book in for a whole week. You know, take a couple of days, a couple of nights maybe, and um, that's probably enough. I was was saying to somebody the other day that, uh, you know, having teenage kids, who uh, at the beginning of July won't get out of bed for anything. They get up uh, at 8 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> really? For that. To yeah. watch it on the TV? Amazing. Because it really is quite exciting. Sports. Now, this one I find is quite interesting. Sport called, how do you say it? Jayalai or Chayalai? Chayalai, yeah. Chayalai means, uh, means happy fiesta. And it's kind happy of... It's kind of like a bit of a made-up name for it uh, because the sport, which the basketball pelota it has lots of different versions you know there's one with a kind of a, a basket most people play with their bare hand if you've ever played squash it's kind of like the rules of squash in a way uh-huh. yeah but yeah. without but without the set of the third and fourth wall it's a very fast sport it's uh, especially with the basket you know I've heard that uh, the ball goes at um, 180 miles per hour when it comes out of basket. People wear helmets nowadays when they didn't use to wear them in the past. The rallies go on sometimes for 10 minutes. Um, it is very, very exciting. And it's very associated with gambling, with betting. Yes. <clears throat> which made it which made it a very exportable sport back in the day, about 100 years ago. There were uh, frontones um, in all sorts of strange places like Miami and um, in California, in Macau, in, you know, next to uh, Hong really Kong. Really, in Macau, yeah. In, uh, in the Philippines. And Basque, a lot of players would travel the world to, uh, to make their fortune in those places. 
as, as we were talking before about uh, inland in the Basque country in the small villages there, every single village has a front on. Has a front on. And um, they are constantly being used. Small kids are constantly using them and they use their bare hands and they start with tennis balls and then they move on to uh, the actual pelota, which is kind of like a, a baseball, if you like. Uh-huh. Much harder, kind of yeah. even almost like a cricket ball, you know, it's kind of um, yeah. a hard wooden uh, wooden and, and rubber covered with leather. And if you're not ready for it, it really hurts your hand. I've tried to play <laughs> it, but it's supremely popular. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that it's still popular because I find I find it a really curious and interesting sport. Um, that's kind of one of the lesser known sports, isn't it, really? If you were to go into a bar in the Basque country, on a Sunday at 12 o'clock. I mean, football has kind of taken over Spain uh, to a huge extent. And, you know, any bar you go in anywhere in the whole of Spain, it's usually got football on. Yeah. In the Basque country, if there's a pelota match going on, it will be on the TV and it will knock most football matches off the TV. I must mention the uh, famous September Film Festival that takes place uh, each year, which, which you're involved with, in fact. Yes, I've been involved with that film festival for 24 years now. What's um, its official name? Well, in Basque, it's called Cinemalde. In uh, in Spanish, it's called, well, in Spanish and English, it's called the San Sebastian International Film Festival. It's one of the world's only seven A-list film festivals. It's a really fantastic film festival. It's the film festival in the world that has most uh, bums on seats. Yeah, unlike uh, film festivals like um, Cannes, where it's basically a lot of critics who go there. San Sebastian Film Festival is very, very popular. Thousands of people go uh, through the screenings. It's not as important uh, mediatically as Cannes or Berlin or, or Sundance. Uh, it just doesn't make it onto uh, the world stage quite as much. But we have um, you know, lots of very, very famous people here all the time. Um, and over the years, I've I've met a lot of them. I work in public relations and interviews and translation. Who have you met? I'm intrigued. Well, just about everybody, really, you know. Yeah. From Morgan, from Morgan Freeman to Johnny Depp. And and what they say, Dustin Hoffman, and they've all, they've all been here. What a lot of these famous people say is that uh, unlike a lot of the other film festivals where security is immensely tense and people are sort of rushed from their hotel to the red carpet, yeah. San Sebastian is a film festival which they actually wander around the town. I can imagine Brad Pitt propping up the bar with some pinchos or something well, like I, that. I, I, I can guarantee that that has happened. Uh, wow. I've, seen it, I've seen it with my very own eyes. So uh, that does happen. You know, it's, it's, uh, and, and people have a very relaxed attitude towards it. It's in September, the last 10 days of September, when it's almost impossible to get a hotel room in the city because of the mm. film festival. But for some reason, the weather's always good at that time of year. You know, in a city where the weather is always a bit uh, dodgy, September, October is a good time of year. Just finally then, um, just staying with, I don't know, uh, media, I suppose. Have you seen this series called Patria? Um, on, it's on HBO España, HBO Spain. What did you think of it? I really enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, kind of well told. To the people who live here in the Basque Country, that story... Uh, is very important, obviously. Give us an outline of the story then. Basically, it's two two women uh, living in a small town in the Basque Country, which is not named, but um, those of us who've read the book or seen the series, we know which town it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a small town. 
And um, one of the one of the women is married to a, a local businessman who is killed by Etta, basically. That's not a spoiler. And most probably he's killed by somebody who has something to do with the other woman. And that whole situation yeah. means that their friendship ends. And and what the story tells is uh, how story divided the Basque country tragically. It divided families. It divided friends. Obviously, obviously, you know, 850 people died. Uh, so there's the main tragedy. But mm-hmm. there's a secondary tragedy to it in, in, in which um, people lived very tense lives. There was a lot of um, recrimination. There was a lot of hatred came out of it and nobody has ever really told that story as well as uh, Fernando Aramuro did in his book mm. and I I believe that the um, that the TV series uh, the way they've done it I think it's absolutely remarkable if you mm-hmm. really what you what you will get by watching that TV series is a real feeling for what small fast towns were like in the 80s and 90s it's remarkably well filmed uh attention to detail is amazing mm. the acting is great yeah and um and the way the tension builds is, is fantastic because um you know what's going to happen in the end you know that the guy gets killed um uh and part of the tragedy is in that because he's a nice guy and he shouldn't have been obviously nobody should have been killed mm-hmm. uh, but by focusing on two families they really do tell how how it ruptured the basket. Absolutely. I think it makes it all the more poignant for that reason. You kind of see these two families who are friends just completely ripped apart by the situation. I can tell you there isn't a scene in that in that series that we haven't seen. Those of us of a certain age. I mentioned before my kids, they don't recognise that. They've never seen that. But especially the small villages inland there was tremendous tension in those years so if, uh, you you are either with us or against us you're on one side or the other people were recognized by the clothes they wore you could nail down their politics by the type of t-shirt they wore their hairstyle something which has disappeared now finally but in those years it was very very intense and 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 this series i i believe it's um it's it's remarkable the way in which it tells that story. I think one of the best series in the last few years, I would say, actually. And it um, tells a very important story. I think it, um, and it was premiered uh, at the film festival in San Sebastian in uh, this past September. Uh, Homeland uh, is the translation in English. Homeland, yeah. Okay. Um, just finishing off, is that still a sensitive subject today, Etta? Is it openly talked about? Or is it something you're going to have to tread carefully with? Uh, you you used to have to tread carefully with it. When I first came here in 1983, I was told at the school I was working at, you can talk about anything, but don't talk about this. It's it's something yeah. we don't talk about. And for, for decades, while they were operating, it wasn't talked about. People avoided talking about it. Now, ETA have been gone for a number of years now. People don't talk about it, but not because they're scared to talk about it anymore. I think they don't talk about it because they, they just want to move on. Uh, people don't avoid it. People mention it far more than uh, they used to. But I don't think there's uh, much, as they say in Spanish, ganas to uh, <laughs> uh, talk about it. Really. I think that when, when, when we were in our worst years here, when lots of terrible things were happening on a daily basis, um, I always felt that eventually the Basque country would move out of it because people would start 
finding other things more important. Jobs, sure. uh, uh, studying abroad, moving around, universities in different countries, Erasmus. Mm. Those things would uh, take the young people away from that. And and I think I was right. I think nowadays that um, people don't give it a second thought. I'll give, you, I'll give you a perfect example. There used to be a time in the Basque country where people didn't refer to the Basque country as Spain. Okay. They would say El País Vasco, they'd say here. Uh, they wouldn't say Spain. Quite a lot of people, a large number of people wouldn't say Spain. Nowadays, nobody doesn't say Spain. Really? It's a complete yeah. 360. Yeah. And I'm talking about nationalists even. I mean, there are people who, um, who are Basque nationalists, who believe in, uh, you know, some degree of uh, autonomy, independence for the Basque country. But that whole thing of not mentioning Spain and things like that is almost completely gone now. There are a few other documentaries that come out. Uh, there's a series on Movistar called Eta el fin del silencio, which is directed by a Basque guy called John Sistiaga. It's mm -hmm. a very well directed history of the story of Eta. The end and of silence. Uh, yeah, the end of silence. And there's uh, there's another one which is also on Movistar, which is uh, called La Linea Invisible, uh -huh. also on Movistar, which is about the first killings Eta ever made, which is a historical drama. And that's very well done. That kind of explains how they came into existence and how they, the La Linea Invisible, the invisible line is that line when Eta in 1968 crossed the line from, you know, just being anarchists and putting uh, uh, okay. Molotov cocktails and things like that, when they crossed the line and actually killed somebody. They killed the uh, Wadi in 1968. So that's really well done. And I think those those kinds of things, this kind of um, documentary series and dra drama series, are a sign that the Basque country has moved on. From those years more outward looking isolation I mean, yeah. country has always been outward looking in terms of trade you know the uh if we look towards the americas and things like that well part of that whole thing after columbus and everything like that the bass were heavily involved in that the shipbuilding for uh all the transatlantic trade so they've always been open and if you go to um argentina mexico chile places like that in south america Mm -hmm. open a telephone book. I don't know if they still have telephone books, but uh, <laughs> when they used to be telephone books, it would be full of Basque surnames because the Basque really took that on because they were on the right side of the Mediterranean to to cross the Atlantic, and their whaling ships already um, had experience in uh, in the Atlantic. So when Spain and Europe opened up to the Americas, the Basques were really well placed to uh, with their shipbuilding and uh, their Atlantic experience. To be leaders in that. A film which I think was one of the most popular Spanish films of all time about five or six years ago. I quite like it. It's quite a light-hearted uh, look at maybe uh, comparing Basque culture with other cultures in Spain. Is the uh, the film Ocho Apellidos Vascos, uh, eight Basque surnames, referring to the fact that a true Basque has eight yeah. surnames trace it going back through their 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 family heritage um, it's quite an entertaining film i suppose if no one's seen it before you know, i think uh, i think it's a very it's an entertaining film and um lots of people like it It was very very popular probably as you say the biggest selling bass film of all time but uh if in the bass country as well a line was crossed with that film is that right yes. uh, what, yeah, what, what was the perception 
Well, the line that was crossed was that they're laughing at themselves about how strange they are, how different they are, sort of offsetting themselves against, uh, I think the uh, the other family was from Andalusia or somewhere like that. From, from Andalusia, and, from Seville. Yeah, and yeah. um, and uh, to be able to bring humour into, into a situation which perhaps 20 years ago there wasn't much humour. You know, it was uh, a darker, a darker thing. And yeah. I think that film was a step in a certain direction. It broke a mold, if you like. Yeah. And um, yeah. it was a positive thing. Whether or not you like the film or not was almost secondary to the statement that it made. But let's have a laugh about this. You know, it's not life or death. It's it's funny. David, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join me on the Wayne's Fame podcast. Thank you very much. Keep up the good work. So there you have it. That was Pais Vasco, the Basque Country with David Bumstead. A huge thank you to you, David. I will put links to numerous places mentioned in the episode in the show notes of this podcast on the When in Spain website, which is wheninspainpodcast.com. Uh, just to mention before I go also that when in Spain, if you're new around here, uh, has a presence on all the usual social media hangouts. So go and follow us on Instagram, Twitter and indeed the Facebook group as well. So that will just about do it for this episode. Don't forget, if you do enjoy the podcast, uh, please do consider signing up to support the show and the work that I do in bringing it to you and putting it together. And you can do that at patreon.com forward slash when in Spain. I shall leave it there until next week with a brand new episode. I shall bid you hasta luego.